Al Jazeera podcast. After war broke out in Sudan just a few months ago, hundreds of thousands of people needed to get someplace safe. One man Al Jazeera spoke with headed north. He made it all the way to Sfax, Tunisia's second largest city. Just stopping on the phone, and yeah, Tunisian guy come, come with a knife and he hit him in his arm. Reporting for Al Jazeera, journalist Simon Speakman Cordell was also there, and he asked the Sudanese man what happened to him. Is his hand painful? So that's a cut? Yes. Perfect. It's a break and a cut, I think. It's the Tunisian man that did this. It all started on Monday night, two weeks ago. A brawl on Monday saw a Tunisian man stabbed to death. That death sparked an outburst of racial violence, and it kept going into the morning when Simon arrived in Sfax. Here, they were firing gas at them. Today? Yeah, this morning. Tunisian authorities forcibly deported hundreds of migrants from the city to the Tunisian border. And it does just seem to be purely focused on skin color, sadly. It's one of the latest eruptions of racist violence against black people in Tunisia. It follows authorities rounding up and expelling refugees and asylum seekers earlier this year. Today, the story of what happened in Sfax. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Simon has been speaking to people inside and outside of Sfax for the past two weeks. This is for everyone. You're, are you all from Sudan? I'm Sudan. Okay, for everyone. Would they ever go back? Sudan, they will never. They will never go back? Yes. As bad as it is right now in Tunisia, the Sudanese man Simon ran into in Sfax has no plans of going home, not while the war is still raging. And neither do his friends. But they told Simon they don't feel safe in Tunisia either. Do you feel that the police will protect you here? No. No. My name is Simon Speakman Cordell. I'm a freelance journalist here in Tunis. I've been here, I think, more than nine years. So you're based in the Tunisian capital, Tunis, and you have been following this story of Black Africans being forcibly expelled from the border town of Sfax across the border towards both Libya and Algeria. How did this Start. I know that you have been to Sfax. Tell us what we should know. Well, it was building up before. You know, I'm always kind of careful how I choose my language, but I don't think I have any option but to call them mobs, really, or gangs of um, Tunisians who were sort of attacking the houses where many of the black migrants were living. They would go in, they'd storm, they'd throw them out. They, in addition to this, you know, there was people attacking people in the streets. And inevitably, three, we are told, I guess, three Cameroonians reacted and they killed one of their attackers. Which, you know, however you wash it, I mean, it is a tragedy. And the response was, as you'd imagine, it was like an explosion. Oh, wow. 
And just by pure coincidence, um, that was the day I was traveling there. So you had been sent there on assignment from Al Jazeera, right? Well, I arrived. Um, I don't think at that point I really knew. But as we went to the back of the Medina, that's like the old city, that had typically been an encampment for black migrants. I've been there in the past, so I knew exactly where I was going. And that was suddenly empty. There were just police cars everywhere. I met my translator who had explained what had the battle that had really just taken place there. Camp Henry, it was a civil war. Just this morning? Yes, because of what happened last night. And we went from there, and it was horrific. One guy I saw bleeding through his bandage. Others hadn't got bandages. There's a park there that seems to have been monopolized by um, Sudanese refugees, because just to be clear, these are like official refugees. They're recognized by the UNHCR. So they tend to keep themselves separate, but they were still, I mean, they're living on dirt. Mm. There was a guy that had his arm in plaster. He had a huge gash and a break underneath it, and he couldn't see a doctor to get it relieved. I mean, it was, it was horrific. Wow. So talk to me about the aftermath of that. The three Cameroonian men were arrested for the stabbing. And then what happened? Well, you could see the police were anticipating still more violence. They were building during the day. I I saw, I think, two armored cars and the police helicopter. And then you couldn't get out of the city. Normally, you would take a luage. That's like a shared taxi. But they were just flooded with people, again, black migrants trying to get out of the city. So there was no way of moving. And then the police intervened and they just bust black migrants in the hundreds. We didn't know how many. To, at the time, we didn't know where they were going. They just bust them out of the city. Later that week, Al Jazeera's Libya correspondent, Malik Trena, found some of them out in the blazing heat at the Tunisia-Libya border. Al Jazeera's journalists are the only media who've been able to access the area. They say they've been abandoned by the world. So when they see our camera, they cheer. So initially when I spoke to the uh, director of the border crossing, I was under the impression that these migrants were about 20 to 30 kilometers inside Tunisian Authority. I mean, that's what the reports were saying. You know, we were talking about this issue. And he, he started saying, I mean, you can go and see, see the migrants and you can see the situation for yourself. And I was just in like complete shock. Like, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, you can see them. They're just a few hundred meters away in what's been described as no man's land. So we stood there. We could see the migrants, I want to say about 500 meters to a kilometer away. And we started waving at them. And about 10 or 15 of them started coming towards us. I think they they were expecting that uh, there was some kind of aid or some kind of water and food, so they started showing up. They saw our camera, they saw, they start calling their friends, and just, I mean, hundreds of them just started showing up. And I started asking them, you know, what, who, where did you come from? And, you know, they say, Svox, we came from Tunisia. I asked them, who brought you here? And they say, the Tunisians brought us here. Let's talk to Eunice, who's from Sierra Leone. Eunice, can you tell me how long have you been here? 
in this in this particular site? I've been here for two days now. Today. And when when did you get? When did they bring you, or who brought you, and when did they bring you from? The uh, Tunisian people bring me from Sfax. I was coming from work. I didn't even get to my house. They arrested me, put me in the bus, and carry me to one place, one seaside between the the border of Libya and Tunisia. They asked us to go to Libya, and we say we don't know Libya. So the pressure, the Libya man say we, we cannot accept what there because we didn't come from here. So I started asking them about their situation, how they, you know, how, how do you have food or water? And many of them said they, there was no food, there was no water. Uh, they were in dire conditions in the scorching heat. They carry some of us, put us another vehicle, carry us again to another camp. And this is the fourth camp they brought us now. They've been exchanging us camp to camp, camp to camp. And we've been here for two days now. We are starving. We have no water, no food. One of our friends is dead. The cop is lying there, lifelessly now. They brought over even people that were injured. So, you know, the camera, we could see people that were in need of desperate medical assistance. I was sweating just standing in the sun. And I was I got extremely thirsty just after a few minutes so you, I, it's hard to imagine uh, that these people were there for five or six days uh, without any water or food we heard reports of people having to drink seawater just to survive uh, we asked them and they told us it was true that they even told us that a pregnant woman had to drink seawater and how long they had been there varied some of them were telling us six or seven days. Uh, some of them were said three or four days. Uh, so, you know, it was clear that Tunisian authorities were bringing these people uh, on a daily basis. There was really nowhere to go. And Simon was realizing around the same time that was just one group. Another group of migrants are being left on the Algerian border with no support to either group. It was horrific. There was a group of, we think, around 100 that were wandering in the desert without food or water, but they just they disappeared. And then recently, two bodies were found there. We don't know if they belong to that particular group of migrants or they predate it, but it was within the last 10 days. Hmm. So that is... Sinister, to say the least. Coming up, the story continues after the break. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women an unconventional and extraordinary artist. Me? I am Frida Kahlo, a communist revolutionary. Everyone in China knew my face. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A week later, Tuesday, July 11th, Malik heard that around 600 people were taken back to Tunisia and given shelter. No one was left on the border. There was nothing more to report. So he headed back to Tripoli in Libya. I decided to call the director of the border crossing just to thank him for giving us access and be able to tell these people sorry. Uh, and when he answered me, he said, how far are you away? I said, we just left Swala. 
He said, well, you know, they're back. <laughs> it was really surprising because, I mean, we went there. We saw this area that they were in previously completely deserted. So, uh, but I said, hey, we'll come. We'll come and, uh, yeah, we definitely want to come. He said, if you want to come, come. You can come and, and, and see for yourselves. From the Tunisian side, Simon was also hearing about what had happened. The border region with Libya was evacuated. And many of those migrants on that border were taken to half-built schools or schools and municipal buildings around the south. So as all this was happening, we thought the story had run its course. Another municipality bust its migrants out to the border again. So, and it's the kind of chaos you're dealing with because there is no strategy. There's no unified command. So on the one hand, we have a government agency that is trying to seek to evacuate the border and another, you know, depositing migrants there. Can you walk me through who's among this group? Because it doesn't seem exactly clear. Are we talking about mostly sub-Saharan migrants who've come up looking to eventually get to Europe? Are we talking about Black Tunisians? Are we talking about residents of Tunisia for many, many years who also happen to be Black who have been caught up in this? We have the whole gamut, really. I mean, I think we can start by ruling out Black Tunisians because they have started to project a very Tunisian appearance in that they will speak the dialect, they will greet people in Tunisian and everything. So they have certainly been subjected to prejudice and in some cases probably violence, but they have not been expelled. But for the others, we have much of sub-Saharan Africa, from Guinea, from Chad, obviously Sudan. There's many that have come expressly to try and get to Europe. And the others have come here because they have a visa scheme where you can get a visa on arrival. And they've come here to work and, and live. But the problem is with renewing your visa is incredibly complicated and quite expensive. So they've found themselves illegal just by virtue of staying here. Now, some that I've spoken to, they've been living in this country for three years, but they've still been rounded up, forced in their houses and beaten in the street. Human Rights Watch has called on Tunisia to stop these forced expulsions. And a political analyst in Tunisia told Al Jazeera, it's a violation of international law. Are people telling you that they want to seek legal recourse? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. There is little chance of anyone holding Tunisia to account for this. Tunisia is currently in line for a billion euros in aid from the European Union, plus $1.9 million from the IMF. It's a deal in the making, a 1 billion euro bailout to stabilize Tunisia, a nation on the brink of collapse and at the center of a migration crisis. And as far as we can tell, this horrific treatment uh, of black migrants in, in the country, by the state as well, does not seem to have affected those negotiations. And it seems to be the European Commission is just so fixated on the issue of migration that it will give this money to Tunisia if it will just stop the migrants coming. Well, the situation with sub-Saharan African migrants sounds pretty dire right now. 
But unfortunately, I think I've said that sentence before. The last time we talked about Tunisia here on The Take, and we were talking about the President Qais Sayyid's public claims that Black migrants were criminals and that there was a criminal conspiracy in place to replace Tunisians. Is what we're seeing the natural conclusion of statements like those, or is there more to this? Well, I think in part, absolutely, yeah. And it's also worth adding that he does not seem to be backing away from his conspiracy theories. Mm. He is still surprised about how many sub-Saharan migrants are making their way to Sfax, thinking it must be a mafia. We have kind of a, and this is being documented, not least by Al Jazeera, actually, a fairly ingrained mistrust of black Tunisians and then and also people from you know the southern reaches of Africa. And that may have just stayed and lingered in the background. You cannot ignore that the economy is tanking. The Tunisian economy is in crisis and the nation's credit rating has been recently downgraded by agencies with fears of the country defaulting on its debt. We are, I mean, very literally facing bankruptcy shortly. You can go to the supermarket, as I probably will shortly, and there'll be gaps in the shelves. And this, quite rightly, I think just terrifies people. And then when you have a president, no less, talking about part of a plot to replace you and impose their values, and there is this horrible nationalist party that are out, you know, activating the same thing. Yeah, of course you're going to get a racist backlash. This is horrible. Black Tunisians, the people I've spoken to, they've been affected by just unapologetic prejudice. Mm. I mean, this was what the guy told me, that the president has given them permission. It's like a, seems like a fine idea to just be vile to people. Mm. So the ripple effects of the president's remarks are being felt. Absolutely. It goes right across society. And the police is another factor in this. The harassment has increased significantly since February. So what has the Tunisian government been saying and doing? Anything? Absolutely nothing. I mean, after the February explosion, I suppose we could call it, there was some backpedaling. Um, we had the foreign minister saying it was a misunderstanding. This time, it is being reported, but you know, it's like a page three or four story. It's not on the headlines. The government whilst it could have ended this, doesn't seem to want to address it. So what's the end game here? Because as you mentioned before, we saw one body expelling migrants to this border region and then another body pushing them back because they weren't supposed to be there. What is the end game? You know, I haven't a clue. I has, I've asked a few people, I mean, where are they going to go? They are the European Union and Italy and the southern European states will not let them in. Algeria will not let them in. Libya will not let them in. And they are in Tunisia. And I think whether Tunisia awakes to its responsibilities, I don't know. I really don't know. Malik agrees. I don't know what's going to happen, really. But, uh, I mean... These people are just continuing to suffer. And if uh, nothing is done, uh, they're just slowly, slowly going to die uh, in, this, in this desert. I mean, this place is 
is not friendly. I can tell you that. And Malik and Simon both say many of these people have turned to them. They don't have anyone but the journalists to even listen to their stories. I was also talking to a group from Sierra Leone. They've been robbed overnight by um, what they described as a group of Tunisian youths. So they had no money. One of them had a mobile phone that he managed to sort of get through the experience. And it is the most useless feeling because they're looking at you and they think you have an answer for them or they think, you know, you've got some sort of secret that you can tell them. And you just feel useless, frankly, because there's nothing you can do. Even if they make their way to Tunis, there's nothing really here for them if you don't have the papers. They're just going to be camping outside the IOM the offices of the International Organization for Migration, where at least, you know, they'll be under the eye of the international community. And that's The Take. We'll be back on Tuesday. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and Sonia Bagat, with Zana Badr, Veronisa Campana, David Inders, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Khalid Sultan, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. 